All right, guys, we're in Lesson 17, and it's entitled The Sovereign God and the Gentiles. Okay, so we're looking at chapter 44, verse 6, through chapter 45, verse 25. Now, <clears throat> Isaiah here is going to focus on, and especially in chapter 44, on, on the sovereignty of God. Now, when I say the sovereignty of God, I know that's a theological phrase. What does that mean to you? When you talk about God is sovereign, what does that mean? What's that? In control. In control. All right, Bruce says in control. <clears throat> Anything? What did you say? Uh, uh, you know, I, powerful. That's right. It's, that's my fault because while you were speaking, I was making a noise and I could only hear myself. Okay? <laughs> so. All right, anybody else? Powerful, in control. What else? About the ultimate say? When you think of somebody, all right, so like right now in England, they're celebrating Queen Elizabeth's what? Yeah, Jubilee, okay, and how long she has reigned for 70 years, and she is called the sovereign of, so she is, quote, supposedly, although ceremonially, okay, the ultimate say in England, do you know, do you know what I'm saying? So they, that's what it means when you say someone is a sovereign, so God is the sovereign. Now, all right, so why am I asking you this? All right, so we live, I, I don't, it, it, these are different days. You, you have, some of you are younger, you're like, I don't know any different. Well, if you're older, you do, okay? These are different days, and sometimes what happens in the midst of these kind of different days is you wonder, where, where are you, God? Are you really in control? You know, do you know what I'm saying? Are, are, you, are you the one who, who's, I mean, everything else seems like it's falling apart and going to chaos. W where are you, okay? Well, remember, this letter is being written to, during the time of Isaiah, to the Jews. They've either in the midst of the Assyrian crisis or they've just gone through the Assyrian crisis with all of the difficulties and struggles and the death and, the, and all that happened with that. They're being told that in a, in, a, in a little while, which would be a couple of centuries, the Babylonians are going to come and do wreck havoc again. And so the natural reaction would be, yeah, where, where are you, God? Are you the one who's in control? I thought you made promises to me. I thought you, you said you would take care of us. You wouldn't forsake us and so forth. So here we come to chapter 44, starting in verse 6. And he's going to talk about the sovereign God, and he's also going to talk about worthless idols. Now, you might say, okay, well, George, we're not really bowing down, although there might be some in our culture that are bowing down to some idol, okay? Yeah, that's true, but we do have our idols. Our idols this time around maybe aren't a carved image or a stone image or a metal image. Our idols could be something that we create that becomes a substitute for God. So for some people, their idol is, dare I say it, hunting. <gasps> Sorry, Bruce, I wasn't talking about the pheasant hunt, okay? Hunting, okay? For some people, their idols are their children, their job, 
And, and that becomes the substitute for God. And what he's going to show us here in this passage is they're really worthless compared to who he is. So let, let's get into it. We're not going to read the passages uh, because there's a lot there, but we are going to give you an overview of what's being said. So let's talk about, first of all, the sovereign God and worthless idols. So the first thing I want you to see here is that the Lord reveals himself to the reader as sovereign and eternal. Sovereign and eternal. Now, I think it's significant that he's saying he's both. He's sovereign and eternal. So when we say something is eternal, what does that mean? What, what did you say, Bruce? Uh, but no beginning and no end. Okay, so forever. Okay? So when you hear someone say he's sovereign, I'm the one who's in control, but in our human life, what does that mean? Yeah, for right now, but that may not be true later on, right? Somebody may come around and knock you off and they become the sovereign or whatever. No, God's identifying himself and says, I'm the one who's in control, I'm sovereign, and I am eternal. I'm forever, okay? I'm forever. Now, <clears throat> the Lord declares himself to be unique and there is no one like him. So he's making the point here. He says, I'm not like anybody else. I'm not like any other God. I am unique. There's no one else like me. So one of the things you hear oftentimes today when you talk, especially in our culture, it seems to be the thing in North American cultures. Well, let me ask you, when you talk to people about religions in our culture, in North American culture, what do you normally hear? What do, what do people tell you? The Buddhist, the Muslim, the Christian, what do they say? They're all alike, they all worship what? The same God, have you heard that? Okay, it's just, it's all the same thing, a moral code of some, some aspect, all worshiping the same God, all the same. Now, that's a really North American way to say it. The problem is it's not true. Because first of all, if you ask a Muslim that, if you were to go to the Middle East and say, is Allah like the Christian God or the Hindu? or what? They would say no. If you go to India, where the Hindus, and uh, where they have thousands of gods, they would say no. The Buddhist doesn't have a god. Buddha is not a god. He is the enlightened one. Okay? And so they, they have, that, that is a whole different system. And in Christianity, we, we all realize that we're, we're not the same. Well, God comes along here and says, I just want you to understand, there is no one like me. I am totally unique. And no one is like me. Period. So the God that you have come to realization that he is and you have, you have given your life to his son, Jesus, is totally unique. Do you understand? There is no one like him. And let's be honest. When you talk to people about the Trinity, about the three in one, one God, the essence of one God and three distinct persons, people are like, what? They don't understand that. They can't comprehend it. Well, let's be honest. We can't comprehend it. We try to, 
But there is something unique about the Godhead, isn't it? Okay, let's go on. Israel, then, is a witness to his strength and uniqueness. So, when you, so remember, he's writing Israel. He's writing to the Jews at that time that are in Judah and Jerusalem. And he's reminding them that their purpose was to be unique among all the peoples of the world. Because they worshiped the one true God, the eternal sovereign God, Yahweh. And that was their purpose. Now, I'll be honest with you, you as a believer now, that purpose hasn't changed. It's not just now that Israel is the one who is a witness to his strength and uniqueness. You and I are. You are a witness to the world around you concerning who? God. The unique God. Okay? The unique God. So the Lord declares, here's what he says, that idols and those who make them are worthless. That the idols and those who make them are totally worthless. And they would be. If you understood who God is, and hopefully you do, and you understand his sovereignty, you understand the uniqueness of who he is, there is no other God, there's only one God, God, then that idol is completely worthless. So about, it's probably been, oh, seven or eight years ago, I was asked to do a conference in Myanmar, okay? It used to be called, back in the 60s, Burma, okay? We've seen Myanmar in the news these days because there's kind of like the beginnings of a civil war there again. So I went there to do a conference, and Foster went with me. I always, when my children were a certain age, I would take them on a trip with me to see the world, Okay? So while we were there, on our last day there, okay, this is the last day we're there. We're supposed to fly out at 1 o'clock in the morning. The conference was over. They wanted us to see the sights of Yangon, which used to be called Rangoon, but it's now Yangon. So they, they have something there called the Golden Pagoda. And it is a place of worship for that form of Buddhism. So Foster and I... Um, had to go there and one of the things you had to do when you went to this golden pagoda you went in you as a tourist we had to pay a fee to go in the burmese were allowed to go in and do whatever they wanted to do for free okay but we had to take our shoes off okay and we had to walk around in our bare feet which that's okay now it, the thing is this is june in yangoon and it's 110 and 100% humidity, and it just rained. And all of the Golden Pagoda is this tile, marble tile everywhere that's slick. And here's George, okay, trying to walk around even in my bare feet without trying to slip and break my neck, okay? So we're going around and we're observing all of these things that are happening. There was the offering of incense, people offering incense everywhere. There was one station that we went to and there were people literally taking cups of water and pouring the water out on an idol continually. 
Just continually pouring the water out on an idol. Continually pouring the water out on an idol. Just nonstop pouring this water out on the idol. I asked the young pastor who took us there, what is this guy doing? What are they doing? They're pouring this water out. He said they're making a drink offering, a pouring out of water there. And I said, what are they making the offering for? Their sins. To wash away the guilt that it's not being washed away. So they continually pour out that idol. Pour that water on that idol. And it's all around us there. All around. And, and, and I'm realizing all of those actions, all that devotion, all that gold, <laughs> everything there in that pagoda, all these shrines and everything were gold. And God says, and I knew it was worthless. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's, it's worthless. So think about it. Okay, you say, George, well, we don't, we don't have that here. We don't have a golden pagoda in, uh, in, uh, in, in Kerwinsville. No, we don't have a golden pagoda, okay? However, <clears throat> we used to have a golden grill, but that's, not, that's long gone now. But uh, we do have idols. And how quickly we find out that they're worthless. Did you, we eventually find out that they're worthless. And, and this is the point that he's making. That he's unique and these things are worthless. He says, those who make idols will experience shame and disrepute. What's he talking about here? Ultimately, the guys who make the idols or, or even you and people around us who make things idols... They're ultimately going to be in shame and disrepute because one day they have to appear before the true God, right? And then they realize, wow, I was wrong. You know what I'm saying? I was wrong. Here, with the same material that one makes a God, he uses it to bake bread. So he's talking about a wooden idol. So with, oh, wow, fancy piece of wood, we'll make that into an idol. He said, yeah, with that same wood, probably the same tree, you make an idol, but you use maybe the rest of it to what? Make a fire to make, what? Bake your bread. This is what he's saying about it's so meaningless here. And, and here's really the point. The Lord has made them spiritually blind to the futility of their idols. What he's saying is, is that it doesn't make any sense. So I make, I'm using wood, same wood I'm making an idol out of is the same wood that I'm making my, cooking my dinner with. Doesn't make any sense. Well, because it doesn't make any sense, but they don't see it that way because why? They're spiritually blind. I think you and I need to recognize the reason why people don't accept your Jesus or don't understand is, is you have to understand that the God of this world has blinded their eyes. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul's very clear. They don't see the gospel. It makes sense to you. Now, can I tell you why it makes sense to you? Because God opened your eyes to see it. But they, going off and doing what they're doing, in the futility of their minds, are there because they're spiritually blind. They're spiritually blind. So unlike the idol makers, Israel was to remember the God who redeemed them. 
So he's going to again contrast it now to these idol makers who are spiritually blind. He says to Israel, look, you need to remember who? God who redeemed you. And that's a great point, isn't it? Because you think about when we go through stuff and when we go through the difficulties of life, our tendency sometimes is to forget God and we're looking for help everywhere else when in reality what we need to do is remember the one who what? Redeemed us and look to him. Do you know what I'm saying? Not look to our bank account. Not look to the advice from our friends. Look to God. So they were to remember God who displayed his glory to them. So when he's talking about displaying their glory, what is he talking about? He's talking about how God showed who he was when they came out of Israel, the pillar of cloud. When he filled the temple with his presence. He's saying they need to remember the God who has revealed himself to them. And you say, well, George, I haven't had that kind of experience where Jesus showed up in my bedroom type of thing. No, no, but you have met him. He has revealed himself to you. Why? Because you understood when you gave your life to Jesus who he was. Okay? He displayed his glory to you. And he continues to. How? Through answered prayer, through the ways that you see God work around you in your everyday lives. So the Lord is the one who created all things and will make the false prophets appear foolish. So he created all things and the false prophets who are telling you do this or do that, that's contrary to him, they're all going to be, they're all going to be foolish. Foolish. And here's what he's going to do. He's going to, especially in this section, verse 24 through chapter 45, verse 8, he's going to talk again about Cyrus. Now, when he's writing, Cyrus doesn't even exist. When he's writing, this is a couple hundred years before Cyrus. This is Cyrus of Persia who defeated the Babylonians. Now, remember, the Babylonians haven't even come and defeated Jerusalem yet. So first of all, you've got to wrap your brain, if you're listening, to the fact that the Babylonians are going to come and destroy everything and then take you away for 70 years into exile. And then the one who defeats them is Cyrus of Persia. This is why people have a problem with this book. How can God know that? Well, he's sovereign, isn't he? And don't listen to the false prophets because I'm the one who's created all things. That's what he's saying. And they're going to appear foolish. So here's what he says. The Lord will prove true when his word concerning Jerusalem is fulfilled. When what he says is going to happen, happens. we'll know that he's true. We'll know that he's true. All right, so here we go. The Lord states that it is he who will call Cyrus to restore Jerusalem and the temple. Now, what does Cyrus do? Cyrus, after he defeated the Babylonians, 70 years after, in fulfillment of the prophecy that Jeremiah gave that it would be 70 years, at the end of that 70 years of exile, Cyrus gave a decree, and this is his historical fact, that allowed the Jews who were in exile in Babylon to return to Jerusalem. He also gave a decree that the temple should be rebuilt. This King Cyrus did that. 
Isn't that interesting? God is predicting this here. Now here's what else the scripture tells us. Cyrus will be used by the Lord to defeat the nations for the sake of Israel. So God is saying, I'm, I'm going to use him to defeat these nations, which was Babylon and their allies, for the sake of Israel. Yeah, for the sake of Israel, right? Now here's the amazing thing. This will be true even though Cyrus does not know the Lord. So when you look at this, can I be honest with you? Cyrus was actually a polytheist. He worshipped many gods. He worshipped the god of the Medes and Persians. He wasn't a worshiper of Yahweh. Now, okay, let's wrap our brain around this. So this is not somebody who is a, quote, follower of God. But yet God says, I'm going to use him to bring Israel back, to rebuild the temple, reestablish themselves back in the land. I'm going to use him to defeat the enemies of Israel. But he doesn't even know me. Okay, now remember, what are we talking about here? We're talking about what concerning God with this lesson? His sovereignty. He's the one who's in control, right? Okay, so let me ask you a question. Let's stop right here at this pause for this moment. What's the lesson from this? Okay, that God can use anyone, non-Christians or whatever, if he needs to be. What else? Anybody want to expand upon what, uh, what Tim is saying? Anybody want to expand? Everything is under God's control. Yeah. Yeah, all of it to the one, one event, which is Jesus Christ coming back. So here's what I want you to understand. What we see from this is, is God uses even, like Tim said, people who don't even know God or are not even interested in following him. Why? To accomplish his purpose, his will. And with that, that will, that purpose is ultimately who coming back? Jesus, right? Now, here's the interesting thing. Remember I said to you, God is unique. He can do many things at one time. God is in control of everything and moving everything around the world all at one time. Now, I find that I can't do that. So, for instance, every morning I get up at 5, I go to the Y at 5.30. And I don't know, it's some kind of, maybe it's a game with me or something. But I go into the locker room at the Y, and maybe it's because it's early morning and I'm half, half awake or whatever, not really thinking right. But I try to see if I can do two things at one time. And I get frustrated every morning that I can't. Do, do you know what I'm saying? Try to do two things at one time. Maybe it's because I'm a guy and I can't do that. A, a woman can do multiple things at one time. A guy can't do that. You know what I'm saying? What do you mean? Like, take my shirt off and, and my shoes at the same time. I, I, I just have a hard time. Maybe I need to go get checked out. I don't know. So, 
uh, I just find, I, I've got this thing, and I'm like, how can I multitask so many different things at one time? I, I got to stop and do one thing at a time. God's doing multiple things at a time, moving everything, everything in the world to where, folks? And what does that reveal? I'm not God. And as you're looking at what's happening around the world at you, he's the one in control because, listen, can I be honest with you? His ultimate plan isn't that everything goes wonderful in the U.S. Or everything goes well in Kerwinsville or Clearfield or in your home or according to your dreams. It's everything is moving to what? The ultimate dream. Jesus coming back and our being with him. And so the things that are happening in the Ukraine right now or the things that are happening in Africa or even the things that are happening here in the U.S., they seem distant in part, but in God's mind, they're all moving together. And as a believer in Jesus Christ, I have to what? Rest in that. God, you never got off the throne. You are sovereign and unique. There is no one like you. And I'm a follower of you, and I put my trust in you. And I'm going to follow you and go where I need to go. So, all right, so here we see, here he goes. The Lord declares himself to be God, and there is no other God. What's he doing here? He's just reiterating, I'm it. Follow me. Okay? He is God. There is no other God. The Lord declares that he is the one who can do all things. God can do all things. Never forget that. And here's the thing. I know sometimes we get disappointed because we go to him with whatever our need is and he doesn't do what we want him to do at that point or maybe even ever. But that doesn't mean he can't do all things. And so I have to rest in him. So it's kind of like Paul. Paul over in... 2 Corinthians chapter 12, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, and I asked God to remove it from me three times. God said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. He didn't take away Paul's problem. But he said, I'll sustain you through that problem. I'll give you the grace. I'll give you the strength. So let's talk about God and creation. So when we come to chapter 45, verses 9 through 13, here's what it's going to say about the sovereign God and creation. So first of all, the, pro the prophet pronounces woe on those who would contend with the creator. The, those who would want to come in conflict with the creator or deny him or whatever. No one can question God concerning his plans to raise up Cyrus and to restore Jerusalem and, and the exiles. You know, people all the time, where's your God? When is just Jesus coming back? Are you serious? We're more modern now. Give me a break. And, and the prophet would say, you know what? Don't question God. Don't question his plans. Here he's talking to them about Cyrus being raised up. Who's Cyrus? That's not a Jewish name. Who's Cyrus? Don't question God concerning his plan. 
So then that brings us to chapter 45, the rest of chapter 45, which is where we're going to spend our time talking about Gentiles. All right, so who are Gentiles, folks? Us. What makes a person a Gentile? You're non-Jewish, that's right. You weren't part of the 12 tribes, the children of Israel. Everyone else is a Gentile, so we're all Gentiles, okay? We're all Gentiles. So Gentiles will come to the place of acknowledging the God of Israel. So the Gentiles will come to the place of acknowledging the God of Israel. Are they there right now? No, not for the most part, no. No. If anything, you know what's interesting, when you look at the news, I, it, it is interesting to me, and, and it's like they don't even see it, it just seems all over the world, people have a problem with one group of people in the world. Have you noticed that? Jews. No, word, no matter where it is, everybody's got a problem with them. For what reason? I don't know. They just do. It's just like a natural bent towards anger towards who? The Jews. Where did that come from? Satan. An anti-God feeling. These are God's special people. Now that same feeling is directed to, to who else now? Christians. Do you understand what I'm saying? Christians. Why? Because it's ultimately an anger towards who? God. All right, so they will admit that there is no other God. So the Gentiles are going to come to a place where they will admit that there is no other God, period. One day, India will admit that there are no thousands of gods. There's only one God, Yahweh, period. Those who worship idols will be ashamed, but Israel will not. I think we can relate to that. Do you know what I'm saying? Have you ever, have you ever, maybe you've been there, have you ever been so convinced of something being true? You've been so convinced that this issue, whatever it is, was so true. You know it was true and you just banked everything on it and then later on you come to find out that you were wrong. The prophet is saying here that those who worship idols will be ashamed. Why? Because the Lord will show up and then you realize, oh my goodness, all this that I have been devoting myself to is what? Worthless. Meaningless. And you'll be ashamed. But he says, who will not? Israel. And I would say, okay, this is written before Christ. Who else will not be ashamed? Believers. That's right, Mike. Believers in Jesus Christ. We will not be ashamed because where's our hope? It's in Jesus, right? It should be in Jesus. Okay, let's go on here. The Lord, is so the Lord who is sovereign declares that these things are true. So God is again saying, what I'm telling you, what's going to happen, this guy Cyrus is going to raise up and he's going to bring back Israel and, and reestablish. This is true. It's going to happen. I'm the one who's in control. What I'm telling you is true. It's going to happen. And we can carry that over into what we're hoping for not a return to Israel, but the return of the Messiah, right? It's true. And so here's what he does. He appeals to the Gentiles to turn from their idols. Turn from their idols. And turn to who? 
The true God. The true God. The Lord calls them to look to him and be saved. Look to him and be saved. And look, can I be honest with you? That's ultimately what our task is here. Yes, we, we live for Christ here. We have him with us to help us through this time. But one of the responsibilities we have is to communicate this. Look to God and be saved. To tell others to look to God and be saved. Okay? That's what we're to do. The Lord declares that everyone will bow the knee and what? Acknowledge him. Now, isn't that interesting? There's another passage that says this in Philippians, and every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord. Everyone's going to acknowledge that. Israel will be justified in the Lord and will glorify in him. That's what's coming for them, folks. Okay, any questions? We're at the end of 17. Next week, when we get into chapter 18, we're going to talk about Babylon and Israel. We're going to look at chapter 46 through chapter 48.